Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, securities sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner and an investment advisor with around 20 years' experience providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I'm a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider. I also have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 20 years. I'm Gordon Leppard, financial advisor with Richard Young Associates. Glad to be here with you guys today. Yeah, we're excited to have everybody here with us today. Listen to us on our weekly radio show. We are right here every Saturday like today from 9 to 10 a.m. And you can check us on our website, moneymd.net, and uh, listen to You can stream us right there. You can listen to us, link to us, and listen to us um, on your smartphone. We're on iTunes. Our podcasts are. Um, and you can link to the podcast right there off our website. Yeah, we make it easy. We do. We do. So it's a great way to listen to us. No excuse for not listening to the money doctors and, and <laughs> listening to all the great advice we have every week. And we know everybody's going to be listening to us because it's so cold outside, right? Right. I mean, what else can you do? It's frigid. Yeah, you should tune into the money doctors. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, here in the dead of winter, no yes, doubt. no doubt, yeah. Yeah. So uh, we have a great show lineup for the day, and, you know, Speaking of of uh, of dead, I mean, what about oil? Oil is about dead. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, keeps going south. It truly really does. You know, it's dipped below fifty dollars a barrel now several times, and um, you know, who knows where it settles out? But that's going to be one of the things we talk about this morning. I mean, what does that mean for the stock market and for each of us individually going in here in the twenty fifteen? Are you giving us a prediction? Well, you know, not exactly, no. But we're going to talk about it. I mean, there's a great article yeah, here out of New York is. Times, and there's a lot of articles we've looked at. And uh, it's an important topic. I yeah, mean, it's it really, really boy, we haven't seen this since since 2009 during the uh, great financial crisis. Very yeah. interesting subject. Certainly in the headlines uh, everywhere. So, And then we're going to follow that up with an article about uh, what you can learn from retirees. You know, um, guys, I know when you sit down with folks that come in that are in their 50s, most of them say, I wish I would have known this information when I was in my 20s. So we're going to go through a couple of items that um, uh, retirees are saying they wish they would have done when they were younger. And we talk about these periodically, but you know, it has a different view. And they say, I wish I would have done these three or four different steps. So we're going to dive into that. Yeah, that's a great topic because we hear that all the time from clients we sit down with. And well, and we're back to tax season again. You there know? you go. From one season to another. And uh, this particular tax season... Might um, might play out be a little trickier than others for uh, for some people that had Obamacare, uh, you know, subsidies, and so we're going to take a look at that and just see how could be how more that's expensive. Effective. Could be could be a yeah. lot more expensive than some people. All realize. those tax changes went into effect too. All the tax increases. So boy, I mean, I know mine are going to be. It's just going to be complicated. Mm-hmm. It just gets more complicated every year, and and here we are again. I saw them stack up the tax uh, code uh, on, on Fox News or somewhere the other night, and it was like, yeah, just like covered up a whole table almost. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine if you had a flat tax, how yeah, easy that, that would be? That would make it a lot easier, wouldn't it? I'm all for that. <clears throat> yeah, that would be too simple. Yeah, that would. Let's yeah. vote that one in. 
<laughs> All right, great show for the day. But we're going to start off here, though, with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, this comes from the uh, Federal Reserve, and um, time. <clears throat> it has to do with a an emergency fund. Uh, only 39% of Americans have a three-month, they call it a rainy day fund, set aside in the event of a financial emergency. So, you know, Dave Ramsey fund uh, three to six months. We, we buy into that as well. Um, we think three to six months is a good solution. Uh, question for you. If you don't have an emergency fund, where do people go to get their money? Well, the, the other 61% obviously has credit card debt. Yep. Or maybe they tap their 401k. We see a lot of loans, you yeah, know, people going right, in there and right. taking that out. So You know, but almost without exception. If I sit down with somebody and they don't have an emergency fund, they don't have any savings, then they have credit card debt. Yeah, absolutely. There's nowhere else to go. There really isn't. Nobody has that perfect budget that's just sitting around there cadillac along at equilibrium, you know, yeah, every month. Right. Um, so it's going to be one or the other. And then, of course, after you tap out the credit cards, then you go to the 401K and you go to all kind of other stuff. And you're just getting a, a big hole, a big nasty mess. That's a bad cycle. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's, it's really hard is. to break it, too. You tend to drag sometimes for years and years and years. And unfortunately, the, the worst place people go, and I see this occasionally, and I'm sure you all have run across this as well, is the, the payday lending. Oh, um, and oh, that's, that's, the, that's wow. the last resort. Those interest rates are, that's you know, really, 400%. I've yeah. heard Dave talk about it and saying 800% before, and those are cycles that are almost impossible to break. Yeah, yeah you're you're headed for bankruptcy once you start heading, going to those folks. Yep. I mean, yep. it's, it's nasty. Bad news. Then. So, yeah, definitely have your three-month emergency fund. Three to six months, actually, is the rule of thumb set aside for emergencies. So very, very important. It's a cornerstone of any financial plan. Yes, it is. No doubt. Good good financial fact. Okay, that leads up to our first topic here, and that is what does $50 or less oil mean for stocks? And for us personally, I mean, this is an important topic, guys. I mean, this is this is uh you know this is new air rare air we haven't been in this air for another for six years now how many people predicted this i know we talked a couple years ago about the u.s being you know potentially a leading oil producer but no one predicted that the oil would drop this much it just shows how unpredictable the economy Mm -hmm. is because yeah nobody was talking about this you know a year ago when they making all made all the 2014 predictions and you know it's just it's just Really amazing. Well, and honestly, I, I honestly never thought we'd see $2 a gallon again. Oh, I know. That's right. My, yeah, my, just, my kids were asking me, when was the last time it was this low? And I'm like, I'm not sure it got this low in 2008. I think it may have been, you know, sometime before they were born in the, the 90s. I mean, yeah, you know, $1.95? I, I think it did actually get there in 2008. It, it, somewhere, it's close. Yeah. somewhere I think yeah. I have those stats, but okay. uh, we'll talk about it. Yeah, but it's... It is shocking. I mean, it, it is a very quick drop, and it hasn't dropped this fast before. I mean, this this has come about in just three months here, three four months. So here we are. I mean, the unthinkable price is below fifty dollars a barrel again, just like it was in the financial crisis. I mean, it's hard to believe it could be this cheap in such a short period of time. It was falling from eighty five dollars a barrel to less than fifty dollars a barrel in only three short months here, and and that means that you know oil in the forties has arrived. Um, off and on this past week, and whether this remains in place really is up to the oil market gods, if you will. I mean, it's it has serious implications, though, for consumers and companies alike. So, you know, what this means is very, very important, particularly considering that oil has not traded under $50 a barrel since April of 2009. You know, the headlines hit on Monday that Saudi Arabia had uh, lowered its, its price, um, and it was charging for, for light, sweet 
crude in the United States, and it appears, you know, the Saudi uh, group that they've uh, decided really just not to to try to support the price anymore. You know, they're going to pump all that they can pump, and you know, UBS has previously said that that the boost to the gross domestic product is now only. 0.1% per $10 drop in the United States, that figure used to be 0.2 to 0.3% um, for every every $10 drop in oil prices. Dutch Bank, though, has said that um, that for every 0.1, for every penny in the change of gasoline at the pump, it's worth rough, roughly $1 billion to the economy. So That's amazing. It really is. That's a lot. There's a lot. So imagine, you know, the cost of gas has dropped, you know, from $4 a gallon some places to under $2 a gallon now. That's $200 billion windfall to the economy all in one year. And, you know, if that lasts, that's going to continue on for as long as it lasts. Yeah, and, you know, the obvious winners here are consumers. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but... You know, filling up the vehicle is a lot less painful today. Um, oh yeah, you know it's twenty to thirty bucks to fill it up where it used to be. You know, fifty or sixty. So, uh, others that are going to benefit: airlines, uh, trucking companies, um, restaurants, retailers, uh, consumer products. I mean, they should all benefit from from low, lower oil prices. And if the drop remains in place, it can mean another two hundred billion or so that's sloshing around the economy um, to spend. You know, on other things other than gas. So that means maybe new cars. Um, you know, people going out to eat. So that that's positive from an economic that's, standpoint. That's going to be a real positive to the to the economy over time, I think. You know, and while the public might not feel, uh, you know, bad for big oil companies, there is uh, kind of a backlash here that, you know, you don't want to ignore. And that is lower oil does make alternative energy, renewable energy projects uh, just that much less competitive. And also the, the wealth that is created by oil and the pay and the jobs that support oil and and the refineries out there and all that stuff, they're far bigger than they are in retail sectors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, who makes more? You know, the cashier, the waiters, the retail jobs, or the people working for oil companies in the industries that serve them? You know, obviously, it's it's big oil. Yeah, that's yeah, right. You know, and many states have tried to minimize the effect of lower oil prices. Uh, that's hurting the main industry. Obviously, states you know like North Dakota and Texas have a lot to lose, but still, uh, the rating agencies have shown that many of the states, even oil-dependent ones, are now more diversified away from their dependency on oil and gas alone. Hmm. You know, so they're they're looking in other areas. They're not just solely standing on oil. Yeah, it's definitely going to hurt those states, though. I mean, so you know, how does oil in the fifties or sixties uh, or even forties now um, impact all those? building projects that you see all over Houston and cities that have ridden the energy boom, obviously it's going to have an effect. And, and, you know, what about the top five oil producers like North Dakota and the Balkan shale oil region, regions? Um, you know, one of the, the ratings agencies has predicted that lower oil will start to starve out production in 2015. And so if that occurs, that mm-hmm. and they're predicting back to $85 a barrel by the end of the year. Well, so. you'll definitely see some of these smaller companies implode. They just yeah. will not be able to keep up. Right, right, right. Right. Yeah, because right. of how leveraged they are, they, they just won't be able to. Yeah, and some will just go idle and probably come back online. But we'll continue discussion when we come back from the break. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. Money, money, money. 
Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider, and Gordon Leppard, who is an advisor at Richard Young and Associates. And we are continuing our discussion here before the break um, about oil, uh, less than fifty dollars a barrel. You know, it's 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 unthinkable, really. Yeah. Stock market's and, uh, not real happy with it. It's good it's for not. consumers. It's not. It is good for consumers, and um, you know, but we're not seeing it in the stock market yet. No. And uh, you know, having said that, I mean, I think there's a lot of indication that it is, it is starting to show up in the economy. Mm-hmm. You know, we saw that in fourth quarter, and so uh, you know, we had GDP prices. GDP growth was was at five percent. Um, so there's some positives here, but yeah, I mean, oil as we mentioned here, airlines. Truckers, freighters, restaurants, retailers, all the manufacturing, that is all going to benefit over time from lower energy. I think the interesting stat is every penny that it drops, there's another billion dollars in consumers' pockets to spend. So that's that's good. And they estimated $200, million, $200 billion additional uh, floating around the economy. So Yeah, from lower gas prices. Yeah, right. That's right. Yeah, that's huge, no doubt. And so, um, so what does this mean? You know, I mean, it's... It's got to be good, you know, in the near term for uh, for con- good news for consumers, and it's somewhat of a self-correcting problem too for the even oil-producing states because, you know, whenever whenever prices do drop, more of those come offline, and eventually that starts pushing mm-hmm. pushing uh, prices back up. So, yeah, the top ten oil companies in the world definitely have their eyes on lower and lower oil prices and they they were not making price assumptions of a hundred dollars a barrel back in 2008 and you can bet they are not now um considering what they're they're sitting here thinking about what fifty dollar in oil could do to their profitability and their projects that they're that they're working on and everyone seems confident that prices will settle out a lot higher than where they are today um here is some additional food for thought though you know, what oil companies should have learned from the mining companies and oil is far from is far from what it what it was out there with commodities. Um, it used to be that every single consumer, whether they owned a car or not, um, they would uh, they, they would, you know, have. Well, let me back up here. I'm kind of losing my, my thought here. The, the bottom line is gas has dropped 40% since April from $3.70 to $2.26 per gallon today. It, it Prices, if they stay at this rate, that would be $600 per household this year in their pocket. Gas prices have been credited with boosting consumer confidence and the stronger GDP growth in the third quarter Mm -hmm. at the 5% growth rate that we just saw that was revised back last quarter. So the big question here, really, that we have to ask ourselves is what does this mean for the stock market? Yeah, and we've got the signals this last week. You know, in the short term, I mean, the answer has become obvious. Um, Stocks do get hurt uh, because the oil-producing companies and the entire energy sector – uh, becomes depressed with uh, with lower earnings, and you know, but that effect effect has always been short lived in in the past, and we saw that you know just a couple of weeks ago that the the markets dropped and then came back. In fact, you know, low oil prices have always been short lived after quick drops because the demand 
is largely inelastic, um, but the supply is very elastic. And so, you know, to me, guys, this is an interesting lesson uh, of economics. Um, you know, the, the supply-demand uh, type uh, things that are out there that are kind of pulling and pushing the prices. But that does mean that when prices drop, demand typically holds steady, and, and that may uh, increase actually slightly. But the supply will drop rapidly as suppliers come offline and stop pumping until the price is stabilized, which is kind of what you were saying, Steve. You know, um, you know, as the price drops down, it's not profitable to, to operate anymore. Some of these folks are going offline forever. Some of them are going offline for for months. So, Fairly, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it does it does come back into a stabilization. So uh, this is not a long term phenomenon. We don't think. No, we don't. And it's interesting because I mean, in the past, OPEC has always been the driver of cutting mm-hmm. supply to raise prices, but now they've sworn not to do that in an effort to starve out producers, apparently. And that effect um, will have to happen, you know, more naturally now. However, it appears to already be happening pretty quickly because dozens of wells have gone offline in just the last several weeks, um, according to to a lot of the articles out there. And, And one thing is for certain, when supply does cut enough to absorb the excess uh, supply that's out there, then prices are going to start to rise again. Um, given the fixed level of demand that you know us consumers continue to uh, continue to to use, yeah, they'll definitely start to rise again. But you know, meanwhile, while uh, prices are rock bottom, it seems like, and gas in the two dollar range has got to be great news for the U.S. consumers, and eventually, you know, hopefully, our economy uh, on a whole. You know, low, lower oil prices will certainly help earnings for thousands of companies across the board. Uh, who contend with energy prices as a major part of their supply cost. You know, so that's definitely going to factor into, you know, what we're paying for certain items, whether it be food or, you know, different things. Um, it'll help manufacturing on all levels beyond the energy sector uh, with higher profits and more capital to invest. And hopefully, you know, that means maybe a few more jobs. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, there it will take some time, though, right? I mean, it's going to be a quarter or two down the road probably before we see... Oh, it's definitely going to have to cycle. ...some big effects yeah. in the economy because, you know, companies have to see that hit their bottom line, have more income, more profitability to go reinvest in, in capital projects as well as individuals. You know, it takes a while for us to realize, hey, we, got a we have a lot more money in our there. pocket yeah. so we can go out there and spend. Um, so what does this mean, though, for the stock market? Well, certainly... You know, as we've said, I mean, there will be some pain in the short term as the the energy prices get, the energy stocks get pummeled in the market. But in the long run, there certainly is going to be a boost to S&P earnings and the stock market. I mean, that's just simple math. And, of course, no one knows what other factors, you know, like Europe's economy will play in it um, this year, which which may override the tailwind for stocks. But... In general, we think lower oil prices have to serve as a net positive in the long run for the markets. It should be an exciting year, though. I mean, it should be exciting to see what happens yeah. and how this plays out. Hopefully it'll be exciting because the markets are going up versus the yeah. roller coaster that yeah. we've had. Yeah, let's, let's hope the excitement no is on predict. the positive side. Yeah, yeah no one I mean, can predict that. You never know. I just heard this morning, in fact, driving in, talking about China and how, they, since they were one of the biggest oil consumers in the world, they are really going to benefit from this, and we really should see emerging markets, you know, start to see some some very positive effects That'd in be their nice, wouldn't it? stock market. Yeah. It would, it would for the stock market in general. It all all helps. So interesting topic. Stay tuned, no doubt. All right, and that leads us up here to our question of the week. 
Yeah, this question is uh, about uh, what kind of personal finance books would uh, MoneyMD recommend? And, um, you know, I had uh, two on the list here. Um, Dave Ramsey has a book. It's called The Total Money Makeover, and it kind of walks you through his program, his process. Um, He has seven baby steps that he recommends. Very, very easy read. I I gave it to a a client one time, and they basically devoured it in a day. Um, Wow. It's it's pretty thick. It's probably, I don't know, 150 pages, but it's very entertaining. It's got some stories in there. So that's a real good one. He also has one uh, that he wrote with his daughter, Rachel Cruz, um, and it's called Kids and Money, and that's also another good good book to read. So those are two that kind of stand out to me. Yeah, those those are good ones. Um, you know, one of my favorites from going way back is um, The Millionaire Next Door by uh, Dr. Stanley, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's just a great book to give you a picture of what wealth looks like, you know, true wealth accumulation over time, kind of homegrown from people that you wouldn't even suspect that live next door, live in your neighborhood, or, or live, you know, who knows, I mean, somewhere in town. But they're just... Ordinary people that have built wealth over time, the old-fashioned way. And if you get that picture in your mind, I think it kind of can kind of affect the way you live your life and the way you save money and the way you spend money. So, yeah, that's yeah, been that a, a good one. You know, John, going along with uh, what you were talking about with Dave Ramsey, we, we ordered uh, the children's book series mm-hmm. here at Christmas for oh, our yeah. kids. Good. And, uh, that you know, they have a character named junior and then they have the superhero dollar bill and my girls they're literally bringing me the books each night and asking are we going to read the next one wow you know so they, they really really enjoyed getting into that one and then another one that i've been reading uh is called your life well spent by russ crossan who is the ceo of um of the ron blue mm. and company uh group and yeah. it's just it's been a phenomenal book so far it really talks about uh the human capital investment and how that goes along with, you know, our, our financial lives and just how, uh, you know, being good stewards of what we've been given uh, is, is a great responsibility. Good. You know, and it's prosperity versus posterity. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's a great read. Good. That, that sounds like a good one to get that. All right. That leads up to our break here, though. So if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call at Richard Young Associates to 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back for these messages and GNN News. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marvin, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who's a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider, and Gordon Leopard, who is an advisor at Richard Young Associates. And we are going to lead off our next uh, topic here with, um, well, the next topic is, I mean, what can we learn from retirees about retirement? Yeah, the the woulda, coulda, and shoulda article yeah i mean this is good stuff because we run into retirees all the time Mm -hmm. in our business and they do have a lot of regrets you know there's a lot of things they look back on they have some advice on that that i think people can learn from yeah no doubt um you know a lot of folks that that we talk with have have, um maybe read a book like we talked about or um taken dave's class or or done uh the crown ministry and they all say i wish i would have known this back in my 20s yeah i I mean every single one of them say that and so this that's kind of what this article is talking about and this comes from the real deal retirement website and uh, researchers recently asked people nearing retirement 
what specific things they wish they had done differently to better prepare for their post-career lives. And, you know, um, here's your chance to, to listen. So if you're out there and you're not in retirement or you're, you know, you're still on that walk, take some of these things and um, make a change to what you're doing. And we can certainly sit down with you and give you some thoughts as well. But, you know, there's no shame in uh, making retirement planning mistakes. A lot of people do it, but it would, would be a shame not to learn from other people's mistakes if you have the opportunity to make a change associated with it. So there's going to be some things that people wish they had done, uh, you know, through their working lives so they had a better retirement. Um, TIA CREF, uh, did a, a survey, and they asked people 55 to 64 what steps they wish they had taken during their working years to increase the chances of a secure retirement. And, um, you know, we're going to talk about a couple of the answers below. I'm going to add one or two at the end here. Um, but the first one here is kind of what we preach a lot, right? Yeah, it is. You know, I mean, it's, it, it's something we hear all the time, and that is they wish they had started sooner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 52% of the people surveyed say they wish they had started sooner. And, yeah, that's the thing. You know, if you're going to make mistakes, you want to make them early and you want to find them out early. Um, and, and getting started is a big one. you you got to get started early. Retirement it can seem like it's a long ways off. Um, and even in your middle stages of your career, you know, it seems like it's still a long ways down the road. And that makes it easy to put off committing to the serious retirement regime that you you need to do because it is a vague date in the future to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But procrastination will seriously hurt the eventual size of your nest egg and your income. You have to get started early if you want to be successful. That is key number one. Yeah, and a great way to do that is... um you know, maybe you're saving three percent or four percent in your four hundred and one k. Increase it by one percent every quarter, <clears throat> so it's not a huge hit, um, but over time it makes a significant difference. And here's some numbers for you: um, a twenty five year old who earns forty thousand a year, uh, let's say they get a two percent annual pay raise and they contribute ten percent of their salary to their four hundred and one k plan throughout their career, they would have a, an account value of almost eight hundred and thirty thousand dollars at age sixty five. Now that assumes a 6% rate of return. So, again, you know, we recommend 15% saving. 10% is going to be a little bit lower, but that's still a pretty good uh, amount to save. So, you know, that's a good that's a good start, $830,000, um, you know, if they would have started at age 25. If that same person waits five years until the age of 30, the nest egg would be $645,000 or $185,000 less. So those five years where they were putting in, you know, a couple thousand dollars um, a year, you know, $4,000 a year made $185,000 difference. That's why we really stress for young people to save. And if that same person waited um, to age 35, then that value would be uh, $492,000. That's 40% less than if they had started, um, you know, in their mid-20s. So, again, you know, if you're listening out there, you have kids, grandkids, you know, the books that you talked about a minute ago with, with Dave Ramsey, that's a great book to share with, with those folks. Yeah, and, you know, that's only at a 6% rate of return, right? If you have a higher rate of return, yeah, if you're more point. aggressive, make 8%, mm-hmm. the difference is a lot bigger. Huge. Yeah. It's huge. It really is. So starting early and, and, you know, having a reasonable allocation toward equities is very, very, very important. Yeah, that's a very good point. You know, John, and that, that is why it's important that we, we focus on the behaviors mm-hmm. uh, as as we're – as we are younger and as we're teaching our kids and, and others that if they can start that way, it does make a huge difference. Um, 
And then, you know, they say they wish they'd saved more of their paychecks. 47% say they wish they'd saved more of their paychecks. You know, but given the financial obligations that we, we have to take care of in the present, you know, like the mortgage, uh, funding health insurance, raising a family, it's not surprising uh, that saving for the future often gets put on the short end of the, mm-hmm. the deal here, you know. And, um, you know, that's why it's important that I know a lot of people, they, they teach, and, you know, we talk about paying yourself first. Uh, you know, or uh, sometimes, you know, we talk about giving first, but mm-hmm. making sure that that you get that in place, that's that's part of your routine. You know, I think that goes right along with what, uh, you know, we were talking about in, in number one. So, yeah. you know, making sure that we, we, we start to put back. Yep, that's right. And, you know, it doesn't take a huge bump in annual savings to make a significant boost. We talked a minute ago about 10% saving. <clears throat> if that same 25-year-old boosted it to 12%, um, you know, over that same time frame, the nest egg would be right at a million dollars um, versus the 830000 So, again, a 1% or 2% increase over a, a long time period can make a huge difference. And, you know, if you're listening out there and you are not getting the company match, that's another way to, to bump that up even more. You know, I, I have to give a shout-out right here to my brother. He uh, he started in his early 20s, and, uh, you know, if he didn't listen to anything else that I shared with him, mm-hmm. then uh, he, he did about that. You know, and he started, and he's close to that 15% mark now yeah, that's of fantastic. savings and that's what correct. he has been able to accumulate, you know, like in his 401K and just the way that he handles his money in general. Uh He's done a great job. So that's what I love about Dave's system that the, his baby steps has a fifteen percent number in there. And if you do that for a couple of decades and you invest in good diversification, historically that's been a pretty good result. And um, you know the the Boston College Center for Retirement Research recommends fifteen percent as well. And again, in that same situation, the twenty five year old. Um, if they would have saved fifteen percent of their salary, that forty thousand dollars, then they would have over one point two million dollars. So, oh, yeah. <clears throat> again, everything that you can do earlier and more of your paycheck is going to add up. You know, over when you're talking about twenty to thirty years, it makes a huge difference, hundreds of thousands of dollars more. So, yeah, that's big, and you really have to get started early too, like we mentioned the first time here. And you know, the other thing that they mention here is that they wish they had invested more aggressively. Um, 34% say that, and and that's a big one, and, and it's a little bit tricky here because <clears throat> investing more of your retirement s- savings in stocks can lead to a, certainly a higher return and boost the eventual size of your retirement stash, um, so it's very important. You know, for example, if our hypothetical 25-year-old saved 15% annually but earned 7% versus 6%, then at age 65, instead of having the $1.2 million you just mentioned, John, yeah. in savings, he'd have $1.6 million. Wow. That's, another, that's only 1%. Yeah. That's only a 1% increase in return, right? I mean, it's only 7%. So you get to $1.6 million. It's $400,000 more. You know, what is that, a 30%, 33% increase from what you mm-hmm. had at the end? Yeah, it's, it's amazing. That shows you the it's power huge. of compound interest there as well in time. You know, Um you know, however, having a, a, a more stock-intensive portfolio, it's going to be more volatile, uh, you know, such as the 57% tumble that stock prices took in October 2007 and uh, March of 2009. The key is making sure that you have a properly diversified mm-hmm. portfolio. You know, we talk about that, I think, every, yeah. every, every time we do a show. 
you know, but that's how important it is that uh, you smooth out some of that volatility, and that gives you a better opportunity for long-term uh, returns. Yeah, and part of that diversification is, um, for some people, is having bonds in there to, right, to make right. it so you're not down 57%. A good mix of equities and bonds there. That's right. Yeah. And you don't want to pull out the bottom. That's the key. So you yeah. got to have a disciplined strategy. So certainly you don't want to get in equities if you think you, you might not be able to stick with it mm-hmm. and you might pull out and change at the bottom like we've, we've seen people do many, many times. So it, the key is you you got to have be disciplined and have a strategy. Yeah, that's right. Number four is that's not on the list is uh, I think you know if you talk to folks that are in retirement, paying off the mortgage, I think would show up on the list. I think that's a, a great goal for people to have. Uh, if you're listening out there and you have an opportunity to go mortgage free into retirement, it just frees up a lot of resources, takes a lot of stress. You don't have that fixed payment every month. So, um, you know, listen to your elders. Um, we try to bring you some some different thoughts and different concepts of what we see that works and, and, and don't work. And if you're listening and you're in retirement, you know, go help someone that's young. I mean, try to take this information and pass it on to the next generation. Exactly. Okay, great topic, and that does lead us up to our break, though. So if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call, 706-739-0725. You're listening to MoneyMD. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider, and Gordon Leppard, who is an advisor at Richard Young Associates. And we are going to continue our discussion here by going to the prescription of the week. Yeah, this um, prescription has to do with all those people that are doing budgets out there. Everybody's doing a budget, right? Everybody shake their head. Oh, yeah. yeah, of course. Cash yeah, flow course. plan. Cash flow plan, spending plan, whatever you want to call it. You can, <laughs> your new one for 2015. That's I mean, right. It's part that's of your right. res- New Year's resolution, I, right? I see, and, you, and I know you guys see this as well. One of the classic mistakes is not accounting for your non-routine expenses. And what I mean by that is it's, it's items that are going to be spent during the year, but it doesn't happen in, like, January. Um, like, for me, I have a life insurance policy um, that occurs in November. So, you know, that money has to be set aside every single month. And not spent. So when I come to November, I can write that check and and not hurt something else. Um, Vacations are another one that typically happen one time during the year. Car taxes are another one. So you've got to look at your non-routine expenses. And the best way to do it that I see people that do this right, and this is what we do, is is we take the non-routine expenses on a monthly basis and put them into a separate account. And so that money is sitting there. So when you do have to buy new tires or have a car repair, that money is sitting there, and you don't have to, you know, freak out because you don't have the money. Would, would Christmas be considered a non-routine? Yeah, definitely. I don't huh? know. Some people celebrate Christmas every month. I mean, you know, because <laughs> I, I actually put some money into my Christmas 2015. Good. There you go. Uh, I mean, you got a separate, separate day, that's so. budget place for that. Yeah. That's great. That's something, the way to do something it. Something like that. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, I I've always estimated over my career that people need at least ten percent put aside for the non-routine expenses. I mean, and there's a lot of them out there. People don't realize it, but, you know, there's taxes, there's insurance, gifts, vacation, repairs. There's all sorts of things that fall in those Mm non-routine categories. And this is above the emergency fund. I mean, exactly. this is something that's going to be spent. You know it's going to be spent. It's just set aside, you know, and it builds up over the course of a year, and it gets taken out over time. Right. So, you know, you got to – it's not part of your savings. So you gotta, you've got to put money back for those non-routine expenses. That's a great, great prescription of the week. 
Okay, and that leads up here to our last topic, and that is Obamacare um, in tax season. You know, we're right here in tax season, and it's going to be more complicated, right, Gordon? Oh, it, it, it should be uh, quite a bit more complicated because, you know, this is the first full year uh, that the Affordable Care Act has been implemented and in place. Uh, so now we've got this year in the books, and now comes time for a tricky tax filing season for millions of Americans. So it's going to be very important that you seek out a, a good tax professional, um, get some guidance there. Don't try to do everything on your own, especially if you're looking at uh, some unique situations here. And so we're, we're going to go over a couple of things, a couple of items uh, that may be related uh, well, that are related actually to the the ACA here, you know. So, um, the law's requirement that most Americans carry health insurance means all filers must indicate on this year's federal tax form whether they had coverage last year and got tax credit to help pay for it. Uh, those who didn't have coverage could face a fine. Although reduced staffing at the IRS uh, and certain changes to the law mean the so-called individual mandate is expected to be lightly enforced if enforced at all um meanwhile you know you've got millions of americans who got subsidies under the law may find themselves with a with a surprise you know getting smaller than uh, their usual refunds or even owing the irs because the credits uh, they received uh, to offset their insurance premiums were too large. Oh, that's not going to be good. Uh, yeah, as many as half of the 6.8 million Americans who got subsidies <laughs> may have to refund money to the government. Ouch, based they on like that. one no. estimate. Yeah. So, uh, you're, you know, all <laughs> all these people that were rah, rah, rah about, yeah. hey, now we've got, you know, health insurance about this, they may be back. getting a tax bill oh, no. yeah. you know, for that. So, Ouch. you know, it's pay in one place or pay, uh, pay or one place or paying another type deal um charles mccabe president of people's income tax and the income tax school out of richmond virginia said the aca is going to result in more confusing uh for existing clients and many taxpayers may well very be uh disappointed by getting less money and possibly even owing money so you know he's just reiterating that's gonna be a surprise to a lot of people could be very frustrating for many taxpayers It'll be a shock for some of the low-income type people that have to pay back some of those tax credits. I mean that that would be that would be pretty amazing. You well, know, they're, they're getting this credit because they don't have any money anyways, and when they get the tax bill, they aren't going to have the money to pay it back. I mean, so what they do just be, miscalculated. I mean, so. well, I guess they got too much, and they maybe they had a little more income than they were than they had reported whenever yeah. they got the tax credit. And so now they're going to have their their tax credits not going to be big enough, I guess. I, I don't know. It's it'll be interesting, no doubt. You know, but fortunately, this really could be a lucrative year for some of the tax firms out there. For example, Liberty Tax Service, a tax preparation franchise, they began calling hundreds of thousands of customers in November to invite them to a store to get help applying for the ex- uh, exemption to the insurance coverage requirement. And he said about half of the 4,000 stores open weeks ahead of time this year in order to provide that that health law tax advice. So, you know, that's an interesting aspect of it. Some people are making money off this. Also, the IRS, though, is expecting more calls from consumers at, at a time when the correct congressional budget funding for the IRS has dropped by nearly a billion dollars since 2010. 
Um, they're, they have 13,000 fewer full-time employees than they did in 2010. So the congressional Republicans, uh, <clears throat> you know, also limited that in this last budget deal that they just passed. So it's going to continue here in, in fiscal 2015. Yeah, IRS commissioner um, said in, no, in a November speech that his agency's reduced funding would hamper its ability to provide the level of taxpayer services that the public has a right to expect. At least he's customer focused a little bit. There you um, come, of course. I, I didn't mean that. And just don't don't come after me. Um, if you're listening <laughs> out there to help avert problems. Federal agencies include including the IRS and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services in January are going to reach out to consumers via phone calls, text messages, emails to to tell them what to expect during the tax season. And IRS officials are urging consumers to uh, file electronically for a quicker return, which I think is good. I think it. Uh, Probably will speed up the process if you can go that route. Well, you know, looking back at the original 2010 health law, uh, it had more mechanisms to enforce the insurance coverage requirement. Um, it required employers to supply the agency, being the IRS, the names uh, of about 150 million Americans who got coverage through their jobs. But the administration in 2013 uh, delayed that reporting process. It also widened the list of reasons a person could opt out, um, you know, if he skipped insurance coverage uh, and exempting certain people whose insurance plans were canceled because of the law. You know, there were there were many people who mm-hmm. just lost coverage. Right. Uh, exactly. The law, so. Yeah, that's right. And this year, the IRS said that it's trusting consumers to answer honestly if they had health insurance. Oh, of course. Yeah, of course. You know, I'm sure everybody will be honest out there. Of course. No doubt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and whether or not they need to pay a penalty. It said the agency won't reject returns if the question about health insurance isn't answered but basically, they're going to assume the answer is no. If you don't put the answer in there, the answer is no. You owe a penalty. The penalty starts at $95. It ranges up to 1% of household income, which, you know, could add to your tax liability last year. It could be hefty for somebody in a higher tax bracket. Yeah, and uh, it's you know, also interesting, TurboTax, um, you know, they have a, a very large uh, online software that you can use. Um they're they're having their system set up to reject incomplete forms. Um, so you know TurboTax and all the tax preparers are also going to you know have issues associated with this as well. Yeah, um, the IRS also said it would allow taxpayers who have applied for but not yet received. Um, it would allow them exemptions from the individual mandate to put pending. So you know yes, no, or pending. <laughs> Um, in addition to determining who has to pay a penalty, the accuracy of the tax credit is likely to pose challenges because people, you know, often incorrectly estimate their future income, and that's that's what's going to cause the real issue. Yeah, that's here, right. You know, and that's that's where there's going to be refunds, or excuse me, um, you know, just tax the, bills. The issue tax bills, yes. basically. Yeah, there's a Vanderbilt University assistant professor that did a study on this, and what they said was the tax credits for people eligible to use the the health exchanges would on average be about $208 too high based on the applicant's most recent returns. So, you know, they're getting a bill of average of $208. That was according to his study. The other interesting thing is when the health law was passed, so the the amount of money that could be taken back from lower-income people was capped at $250 for a single person and $400 for a household. So there are some levels that they won't go above. but they've extended that now. Oh, good. Taking uh, the caps off. uh, $2,500. Nice. So, you know. It's a mess. 
It is. It's going to be a mess. Consult your CPA. Definitely consult your CPA. It's going to be more complicated, particularly if you're one of the higher income people that, you know, have the additional taxes on, you know, income that's uh, uh, investment income, Mm -hmm. right? Um, It's going to get a lot more complicated. And the tax code always does, right? So lots to look forward to here in the next couple months. But... uh, Anyway, that brings us to a close for this week's edition of Money MD. Stay tuned next Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Do check us on our website, moneymd.net, where you can email us there, you can link to us, and you can also pick up all of our podcasts. You can also get us on iTunes, uh, Money MD on iTunes. So stay tuned. Uh, and give us a call if you have questions, 706-739-0725. Thanks, and have a great weekend. Have a good one. Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed local provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, security sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC.